1: I don't consider myself a model. That's a noun. I model for a living. So model is not who I am. It's what I do. And I think a lot of young girls especially get caught up in this idea of being a model as opposed to modeling. It's that real lesson, especially for someone in my line of work, to have to like what's on the inside. You know, to not identify with the envelope. Uh, The envelope took me far, but it's like, that's not who I am.
0: That exterior, the envelope she talks about, made Cindy Crawford one of the most celebrated supermodels in the world. Since then, she's created a bona fide brand that's worth over $100 million. And her staying power is a testament to who she really is. Before Cindy was a savvy supermodel and mom, she was a small town girl and life wasn't always easy. Cindy's younger brother, Jeff, died when she was just 10 years old. Her parents' marriage fell apart and money was tight. Cindy made a conscious decision that she would always be able to take care of herself. So she took her Midwestern work ethic, those stunning looks, and set off on a career. And at 46, she still has no signs of slowing down. Everybody has a story and there is something to be learned from every experience use your life as a class this is
1: masterclass with Cindy Crawford it's hard for women in today's society because we're expected to, to be so many different things like at the office you're supposed to be professional and you know not emotional and duh, duh, duh. and then at home you're supposed to somehow leave that persona at the office and sometimes it's hard to make that transition part of the reason that I think that people respond to me and has enabled my career to be as long as it has is that Cindy Crawford the thing and Cindy the woman they're pretty much the same and I think as I get older they're more and more the same I grew up in the small town of DeKalb Illinois and that's about 60 miles straight west from Chicago the kind of place where we left our doors open at night and you knew your neighbors. You know, it was really about family there and just really feeling like a part of this small community. We didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid, so it definitely was a very simple blue-collar existence. I did a lot of jobs growing up, starting with the job that every DeKalb kid does, which is working in the cornfields. And my father did mostly manual labor, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom pretty much until we were all further along in our education. My parents parented as a team. You know, it wasn't like one was strict and one wasn't. They both were pretty strict. I think what my mother gave me was the sense of, okay, unconditional love. I know whatever I do is okay with her, I mean, within reason. And then my dad was the one who kind of pushed us toward excellence. He's the one who rewarded success or good grades. So it was a nice balance to have from your parents to have someone pushing you to do your best, but having someone that you knew that even if your best wasn't maybe first place, that was still okay, too. My dad always wanted a son, and he had first my sister Chris, then me, then my sister Danielle. My sister's name is Danielle because my dad's name is Daniel, and I'm pretty sure the only reason they even went for the fourth child was to go for a boy. They had my brother Jeff. My father was thrilled. I mean, he's... Definitely that type of man It's like, he's going to carry on the family name. When I was eight years old and my brother Jeff was two, my mother got the diagnosis that my brother had um, leukemia. I think when my parents first told us that my brother was sick, we didn't really understand what it meant. They didn't use the word cancer. We knew that all of a sudden we were going to the hospital a lot. He was going almost every day for radiation and it was a two hour drive from where we lived. At that time, the prognosis was not good at all. So my parents put him into an experimental program at a hospital in Madison, University of Wisconsin. He was in remission at times. It was like that hope that he's cured, he's better. And then the remission ends and they get sick again. Then all of a sudden it was more doctors, more hospitals, and, you know, my mother more, more distracted and sad and stressed out. I don't think that at age 10 that I knew that it was terminal and I had had not had any close experience with death and did not understand death. My brother did know, at one point for sure I know, because my mother said she found him sitting in his room and he was sitting at his little table and she said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm praying. And she said, well, what are you praying about? And he said, so that when I die that you'll be okay. As a mom now, I can't imagine hearing your child say that. Right before he died, he had told all his doctors, I'm not coming back. It was over Christmas and he's supposed to come back January 3rd for another bone marrow test or transplant or something and they're really painful. And he had said, yeah, I'm not I'm not doing that. And you know, he's three years old and they're all like, okay, that's fine. And then to my mom, yeah, we'll see you next month. And the day that he was supposed to go back to the hospital, that's when he died. There's some sense of completeness and peace that comes with knowing that he knew that, and he decided he was done fighting. I remember I was at my grandparents' house, and I saw my parents walk in their door. And I knew in an instant, without anyone saying, I knew that my brother was dead, because they weren't supposed to be there. And he wasn't with them. And it was like, it it just clicked. That moment of it sinking in for everybody and just the sound of everyone kind of started crying at once is like a sound I'll never, I'll never forget. After his death, both me and my sisters, we would often have dreams about Jeff and that I think we kind of felt like it should have been one of us. Not that my parents ever said that, or my father never made us feel that way, but thinking that way as a kid, what it does is it makes you want to make up for that missing son. I think that's how all of us kind of took losing a brother. You know, it was like, okay, but we're gonna, we're just gonna be better. I have no idea how my mom was able to live through losing a child or how any mother could live through losing a child i was lucky to have my mother helping me and my sisters grieve and you know really talk about it and process all the different feelings that come with loss and the way she explained it to us was just that look we're all put here on earth and we have a job to do and jeff just did his already that really helped us not get stuck in the hopelessness There was a local photographer in my small town, and he shot photographs for the college newspaper. When I was still in high school, he asked me if I would do that, and my parents were very suspect of, you know, hmm, who is this guy? So my parents came to the photo shoot, but it was like the first time I ever saw a real camera with like a reflector. It was like, ooh, this is fancy. I met a makeup artist and she said, oh, you should do this hair show. They're looking for models, it's $100. And I went and I got selected. And that was like the beginning of my modeling career. Along the way, in just thinking about my brother, I got this image of like a rocket when it takes off and there's like that booster engine behind it. And then once that booster engine gets the rocket into orbit or wherever it's going, that part falls away. That just stuck in my head like I see my brother sometimes as like the, the, the force, the power that helped kind of boost me off in my life and on my journey. My mother really took it upon herself to grieve in a, in a very tangible way. She went to death and dying classes, she started doing charity work for the Leukemia Foundation and all of those things helped her really recover or or go on. I don't know if you recover, but to look forward. And I think for my father, it was a lot more difficult because he had to go to work. Like the day after my brother's funeral, he had to go back to work. He had to put food on the table. And I think for him, he internalized a lot more um, his feelings. Unfortunately, my parents were one of those couples that didn't make it. When they finally did really get divorced, my father would give my mother money every week her child support. But if he was mad at her because she'd gone out on a date or done something else, he wouldn't give her the money that week. And I mean that sometimes meant we didn't get grocery money or gas money. And I saw that, and I was like, this will never happen to me. This, I will never be in that situation where I can't take care of myself. I'm lucky because I, because of my career, I've been able to, I am financially independent. Even if I stopped working today, I, I could take care of myself. For Randy, my husband, it was hard for him to get used to me not, not needing that from him. But there's still places in our relationship where I have to let him get that feeling. It's okay to lean on someone. You know, I've had to learn to, to back down a little bit from that and to be okay, even if it's little things. I've had to like, slow down, let him open the door. That feels good to him. And then guess what? It feels good to me too. But as a 16-year-old girl, seeing my mom having to plead for the money every week to feed the kids, I just thought I will never be in that situation. I finished my senior year out. And because I'd worked so hard at my academics, I was able to graduate um, valedictorian, which was great. That helped me get a really great academic scholarship at Northwestern for chemical engineering, super exciting. I mean, there's no way that my parents could have afforded to send me to school there. Here I am, my first day at Northwestern and the first day of calculus. I remember I walked into class. For some reason, I caught the professor's eye and he was like, honey, I think you have the wrong class. And that made me so mad because it was really the first time in my life that I felt judged by the way that I looked. I did not grow up feeling that I had to prove that I was as good as boys. I just assumed that I was. He just made a snap decision on me that she looks like that, she can't be good in calculus. I think it set me on a course of, I got to prove to the world that I'm not that. I have relaxed that over the years because you just realize, hey, people are going to make those judgments about me or they're not. But I think it was really important to me, especially then, for people to hear what I have to say and to represent myself as someone who has a brain. I had worked so hard my whole, you know, junior high and high school to be a student. And that was something that was such a part of my identity. And at a certain point, it became clear to me that I couldn't be going to Northwestern full-time and do this modeling thing And do either one right, you know. You can't give two things 100%. And I just felt like if I really want to finish college, there will be a time in my life that I can do that. The modeling thing um, at that time was like you were ancient as a model if you were 25 years old. My mother, she just said, look, the only failure is in not trying. You can always come home. So go have an adventure. And if you end up not liking it or it doesn't work out, you just, you can always come back. I was afraid, what if I failed? You know, it wasn't like a sure thing that I was leaving college for. So I decided to withdraw from Northwestern and it really was a hard decision. But a lot of times it's just like, you gotta make a decision, make it and don't look back. In Chicago, there were several working photographers at that time, but there was really one big fish in that pond and his name was Victor Skribnewski. I was lucky because after Seeing me a few times, they actually booked me and Victor liked me and I ended up pretty much working there five days a week. That was like my gig, I just went to Victor's studio every day. You couldn't come in late, you couldn't be on your phone. It was like a real job. I learned so much from him. I mean, he really taught me how to be a model. But I was offered a job to go to Bali for 10 days. My agent called and said, hey, she's got this other job and do you mind releasing that day? No, they didn't want to release it. And we made the decision that I was gonna cancel it and do this other thing. And Victor said to me, I am the only one that can photograph you and make you look good. And I will never work with you again. And he was my bread and butter. He was the reason I was able to support myself as a model. And that was very scary to me. But I knew that I, I needed to grow and I needed to experiment. I, you know, I couldn't just put all my eggs in that one basket. It is true that Victor never worked with me again after that, never booked me again after that, until about three years ago. And it was kind of a nice, like we made peace, but back then at age 20, it was super scary. What I took away from my Chicago experience was that I did not ever want to have that enmeshed of a relationship with one photographer again. I consciously cultivated relationships with several different photographers. It was like spreading the risk. It's probably like how I invest my money too instead of putting everything in one place. It's like, oh, I'd rather spread my risk around a little bit. But I can't tell you how many magazine covers. What the thought in my head is, is take that, Victor. (laughs) That's really one of the things that I've used to give my face a certain attitude, expression, life. I had just been away on a shoot somewhere and I was coming back through the airport and I was so excited because my first Vogue cover was on the newsstand and I I ran up to the newsstand and I, you know, took a stack of three and I put it up there and I was waiting for the woman to like look at me and go, hey, that's you. And I'm not sure she even looked at me, but if she did, she didn't recognize me. And she's just like, you know, you have three of the same magazines, honey. And I was like, but... But, you know, but I didn't want to say it's me, but I, want, I wanted her to say, hey, that's you. And I, I just handed over the, the $9 and ran away. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> Look, I love my job and I love, you know, it's like playing dress up and I love the rapport that I have with photographers and whatever idea that you're communicating that day. But that's like a team of people, you know, that's what makes it fun too. It's like the hair, the makeup, the photographer, the lighting, the, the stylist. But when I go to buy the magazine, when I show up at the job, I'm just Cindy. It's like a team that gets you to be Cindy Crawford, and I guess that that kind of thing reminds you of that. There was this group of models, myself, and Christy Turlington, and Linda Evangelista, Naomi Campbell, Claudia Schiffer. We we looked good together, but we didn't. We weren't like all blonde hair, blue eyed. We all had our own kind of look and our own thing going, and there was kind of all this hype about models, but then there was this one moment in time where there had been a British Vogue cover that Peter Lindbergh had shot, and George Michael saw that and he's like, I want those girls in my next video. Then Gianni Versace took most of the same girls and had him in his show with George Michael in the audience with that song playing. And it was just like this moment it was like, wow, this, to me, that was like the biggest supermodel moment of my career. Fashion and music for the first time were together in a way that was being viewed by the masses. It was like, okay, that's, that's like the arrival of the supermodel. When I started becoming famous as a model and people knew my name, that was something that I noticed that my dad really liked. Again, it was because the family name wasn't going to end with my brother. Like, okay, you're still Crawford. In 1991,
0: Cindy Crawford married Richard Gere. When they met, Richard had been a famous movie star and celebrity for years, and Cindy was a supermodel on the rise. The spotlight on their relationship was, to say the least, intense. The marriage only lasted four years but cindy says what she learned during that time helped her in so many ways including preparing her for the wonderful marriage she has today with her husband randy
1: when i was probably at the height of my career you're so busy just doing it every day that you don't kind of feel what's going on in the outside world it was before you know twitter and facebook you didn't really know how many fans you had you measured it by like old-fashioned fan letters that came in the mail. My friend Herb Ritz, who's also an amazing photographer, was having a barbecue and I went to his house and there was a lot of really cool people there. I was like, wow, Jack Nicholson, that's cool. You know, it was like, I was still, I was 21, it was still all new to me, but I met Richard Gere there. We pretty much started dating right away and when I was with him, that's when I was becoming well-known as well And when I would see how he was with fans when they approached him, a lot of times, you know, it wouldn't be a good moment to sign an autograph or shake a hand or take a picture. But I got to look to him to see how he created boundaries for himself that felt good. Being a nice girl from the Midwest, my inclination is always to give and say yes because I want people to like me. But then I saw Richard do it in a way it was like, you know what, sorry, I'm not doing that, but I see you. He felt that Really, it was just about making that connection, looking someone in the eyes and making sure that they felt seen. And that was it. Like You didn't have to do the picture. You don't have to do the autograph. But but to take that moment, just to make a human connection. I think a lot of what happened with Richard and I was, I was still 22 and at 22 as a young woman, I was kind of still figuring out who I was and what I wanted to be. And, you know, he was already 37. So in some ways, he knew that I was still growing and changing. I didn't want to hear it from him because at 22, you think you know everything and you think you're already formed. And then you realize 10 years later, you're like, oh, my gosh, they were totally right. I just think your 20s for women is such a time where you're starting to, like, come into your own and feel your own power and connect to your inner strength. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to change in a relationship because what one person might have signed up for and then all of a sudden you're not that anymore. It's like, well, you know, I think I was more willing at 22 to be like, okay, I'll I'll follow. And then you start going, well, I don't want to just follow. I want to lead sometimes and I want to walk side by side sometimes. I think everything you do helps you find your inner voice. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's defining what you don't want that helps you then get closer to what you do want. Richards are super smart guy and he's interesting and interested. And I learned a lot about the world. I mean, it was a great, a great chapter in my life. The biggest lesson I learned from my first marriage is how important it is to be friends, I think first and foremost, with your partner. When I met Randy, I was ready for Randy because we started off as friends. And I know that Randy and I, we will always be friends no matter what being rooted and based in friendship, it keeps the relationship elevated to, a, there's always a certain level of respect. We respect each other's opinion about parenting and, and how to, our personal life, but also in, you know, for work stuff, he'll ask me, what do you think of this? And I'll ask him, hey, I got offered this. Do you think I should do it? And, and we really listen to each other. And I I would want that friendship in my life no matter what. There's a private, side to me like everyone has that isn't for public consumption that only my husband knows or I have meltdowns or whatever like I don't do that at work because it's not professional it's not appropriate but you know we all have those days at home where you know you don't have to have on your game face as much. I knew a producer named Joel Silver and he asked me to do a movie for him And I was like, Joel, I'm not an actress. I don't want to be an actress. And he was like, I really want you to do this movie. You're doing this movie. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And he kept saying, how much? You know, more money. And uh, at a certain point, I was like, I'm I'm an idiot if I don't do it. I should have been more focused on who the director was than what kind of trailer I got, because there was, like, problems. And after the third week, he stopped speaking to anyone on the set. It was difficult, because... Here I am, I'm not an actress, and literally would get zero direction. It wasn't the worst movie ever made. I've certainly seen worse, but it just didn't do well, and people weren't that impressed with my performance. I realized I'm not comfortable being someone else, and I don't even buy it myself, so how can I expect other people to believe it? one reviewer said, yeah, is this she could really be a lawyer. And it was kind of triggered that Northwestern professor who thought that I couldn't be in calculus because of the way I looked. This guy's telling me I couldn't be a lawyer because I look like this. And I'm like, you know, I could have been a lawyer if I would have stayed at Northwestern. I was a good student, you know? And that was the one review that I remember. Finally, after doing that, being able to go, you know what? That's not for this lifetime. That's not happening. It was good because then I could focus my energy at the things that I do like and that I am good at. But my reasoning for doing fair game was even then, and I think I was 28 years old, I, I was like, wow, I'm only 28, if I stop taking chances now, if I stop doing new things now because I'm afraid to fail, it's like, wow, what am I gonna do for the next 20 years? That was really the main reason that I said yes, was I have to still put myself in positions where I could fail and that I'm taking chances. My goal in life is not to be happy every day, because to me that is like Cinderella with little birds like flying around and, and uh, rainbows, and it's fake. My goal in life is just to be present. It's really about making choices, what you're going to do with your time and your energy, and then fully being there. Part of being present, you know, besides just being in the moment, is being willing to. Go where the present takes you, even if it's difficult or hard work or not fun. Being willing to go down that road, because that's where you, you know, when, when you come out the other side, that's when you really grow. I think a lot of people in our society, they try to avoid pain, and they spend so much energy avoiding a person that they don't want to have an unpleasant conversation with. And my philosophy would be more like, go there have that and, and work through it and get to the other end of it because that anxiety that you are carrying around by avoiding it or by you know, postponing it is way worse than just, than just being there and doing it. That to me is like the richness of life. You have to take the good and the bad. If I'm with someone, I need to be there with them. If I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids. I'm not on my phone. I leave my phone in my office. Or if I'm out for dinner with my husband, I'm not like, oh, I wish I would have stayed home to put the kids to bed. Because I think a lot of us, if the temptation is like to try to um, multitask everything, but you can't multitask presence. I think having come from this incredible place of unconditional love for my own mother, that gave me confidence that I could and wanted to give that to my own kids. You know, It's not like I have to try to do it, it's just... Like, that's what I know. It's in my DNA. So, and you know, I love being a mom. And I also love how kids call you on your, your stuff. They don't care that I'm Cindy Crawford. I'm just their mom, right? And it came at a time in my life where I was really ready for that, too, where it's like, okay, thank God it doesn't have to be about me anymore. A lot of times you hear young mothers say, oh, I can't wait till they're sleeping through the night or I can't wait till they're walking or I can't wait till they're talking. And, you know, there's part of that that I relate to, but I always t- remind everyone, it's like, it goes like this. And to really enjoy the present and the stage they are right now, because in a minute, they're going to be on the next one. But not to wish the present away for the future. That's going to that's gonna come anyway. My husband's always like, oh, I miss the kids when they were little. And I'm like, yeah, but wow, look at them. We get to watch them grow up. They have that whole blossoming ahead of them. and, and It's such a joy as a parent to watch that. After my brother died, one of the things that my mother did, and I really think it helped her with her healing process, was to organize a dance marathon in our town to benefit Leukemia Society of America. And it was just a really empowering example for me to see that we didn't have hardly any money. In fact, we were in debt after my brother died because of the medical bills. But still, my mother was able to raise money, a couple hundred dollars, which I, at the time felt like a lot of money. And I, and that was like, wow, you can make a difference even if you aren't Bill Gates. That just set me on a path to wanting to give back. And oh, I mean, I've met so many incredible kids and families and just the courage that they show in the face of dying or a terrible you know, diagnosis. But I remember I was with a friend of mine and she runs a charity for kids with cancer. She invited me out to spend some time with these kids, and they're all bald by the time they get to her. They've all lost their hair from chemo, and we were sitting at lunch one day, and the the advantage to me is I've been around a, a lot of kids with cancer, so it doesn't scare me or freak me out. We were all sitting, talking, and one of the girls was sitting next to me, and she just, she took off her hat, and she took my hair, and she laid it on top of her head, and, then the whole group of girls just went around describing in vivid detail their hair before they'd lost it. They didn't want me to see them as sick girls with no hair. They wanted to give me a picture of who they were before they got cancer. It was like, oh, mine was curly, and oh, I used to do this with mine. And it was just such a little a little thing, but it was also a beautiful thing. Like, they weren't sad talking about it. They were just talking about it and I I could have gotten very upset but I just was just there with them and just letting them tell me about their hair. A lot of people just they just see the cancer like that's a cancer kid but it's a kid with cancer you know they're a kid first or they're a young adult first they're not their diagnosis. Again it's like about being seen it's about making that eye-to-eye contact that connection and recognizing them as I'm human, and you're human. There is something, these kids that are going through that kind of a challenge, they do have this wisdom that if you are smart enough to listen to them, you're just blown away by how much they can handle, how they see the situation, their courage in facing the situation. When my brother was diagnosed with leukemia, I think the cure rate was like less than 25%. And and I certainly, I don't even think my parents felt like my brother had a chance at all. Now, the type of leukemia he had is 90% curable. Sometimes when we give money and you make money for charity, you think, oh, where is this going? But actually, in only 40 years, that diagnosis is not a death sentence anymore. So that money actually does pay off with cures.
0: What strikes me most is how normal cindy is and how comfortable she is with herself just on the inside a wife and a mom she doesn't strive to be happy but instead she's learned to see the joy in being present which is the real great spiritual gift and she's also learned that you can't multitask being present she learned that love is best rooted in friendship that you have to take chances in life even if the outcome doesn't go as well as you'd hoped. And if you want to be taken seriously, you got to show up on time, be prepared, and do the work. So after spending most of her life being defined by that exterior envelope that we loved watching her be, how does Cindy feel about getting older, about the aging title? She says, it's not always fun, but I love... That she feels the same way about getting older as i do she says she's come to see it as a true privilege
1: the idea of getting older is daunting and intimidating and not that fun really but recently i shifted to i have the privilege of getting older and i really like that because it's really easy to spin off into the negative as opposed to aren't we lucky that we're here that we get to get older And every time a negative thought comes up in my mind about like, oh my God, that wrinkle or oh, my stomach doesn't look, you know, here I am like sucking it in for a photo shoot. And even last week I was shooting a cover for Shape Magazine and the temptation is to, oh my gosh, I'm in a diet for the week before and I'm really skinny. And I thought, is that what I really want to say? I'm 46 years old. I want to look great for 46. I want to be healthy. I want to be strong. I want to be a good role model to my daughter. I don't want the pressure to look like a 25-year-old. So I consciously said, you know, I'm not going to do that. First and foremost, I'm human. So I have something in common with every other human on the planet. You know, I work hard to stay in shape and eat right. And I work hard on my marriage and I work hard on parenting and my job, but I'm far from perfect. And I don't even want to project perfect because Wow, that's scary because there's only one, one way down from perfect is to fall really hard. I think it's a lot easier to see yourself getting older if you're happy in your life and if you're doing meaningful work and you are contributing to life in a way that makes you feel good about yourself. Yeah, I have a working relationship with my husband that I feel good about and yeah, my kids are turning out pretty good and I think we have a great relationship and those are the things that... I think you go, you know what? If having all that means I I also have to look older, I'll take it. It's a pretty good trade. A few years ago, I was with this group of friends that we go to like a retreat every year and we go hiking and do yoga. And one of the evenings someone asked, "Have you found your passion in life?" And if so, what is it? I think when when you're in your, you know, you're in your 20s and your 30s, you're so busy, you're going, it's hard to take that moment to reflect, and certainly, I think as I've gotten older, I'm more able to, but since I was on a retreat, I had time to actually let my mind explore the concept and think about, well, really, what is it? What is it about modeling I like? What is it about parenting I like? What is it about friendships that I like? What is that common thread? And the next day, we had like a two-hour silent hike, so I had a lot of time to think about it. After the hike, I was like, "Okay, I got it. I'm so excited. And I was able to identify that I really like communicating. And that was so liberating for me to kind of define that. Because then when you're making decisions about other things in your life, it's like you can put it to that test. Does it mesh with my passion or not? Is it furthering my passion or is it squelching my passion? Being in front of a camera for modeling, I like telling a story that's communicating. I like learning how to be better at my relationship with my husband or my kids. But I think that you're still growing and that you're still forming. It's like, who do I want to be when I grow up? You know, you still got to ask yourself that question.
0: I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.